Welcome back to the program. How many of us have taken great leaps out of fear? How often has failure of being fired or jilted resulted in being forced to take actions that turned out to be positively life-changing? Often our journey that leads us to be lost in the wilderness is what finally brings us home. As Bill Gates, one of our most successful entrepreneurs, has said, it's fine to celebrate success, but more important is the lessons of failure. In the startup world, entrepreneurs are taught to fail quickly, learn, and move on. We all get advice, often a kind of sanctioned nagging, but it's life experience and usually failure that teaches us the big lessons. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Megan McArdle. She's a columnist at Bloomberg View. She's been a correspondent for The Atlantic, The Economist, and Newsweek. She's a graduate of the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business and has worked for two failed startups and founded her own short-lived business. It is my pleasure to welcome Megan McArdle to the program to talk about her new book, The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. You know, one of the things we, we hear a lot about, we talk a lot about today, is this whole idea of creative destruction and how it's changing the business landscape and so many aspects of our lives. I think what we forget sometimes is that failure is an integral part of thinking about creative destruction. Talk about that first. Absolutely. I mean, creative destruction really is the engine of the economy. It is the process by which we bring forward new ideas, new products, new companies, new leaders. Um, but the, the, you know, there is a destruction part of it. That is the part where old companies and old ideas and old leaders uh, get, get destroyed or pushed aside. And so it's really important to remember that when something goes wrong, when failure happens, that is part of the process. Um, but also it's important to remember that what happens after matters as much as letting things fail. America is very good at, say, if one of our companies fails, we don't, as France might, say, oh, well, we should buy it up and, and make sure that no one loses their job. We let the company go under, with the exception of uh, auto, worker, auto companies in 2008. Um, but what we're less good at is, or sometimes less good at, I should say, is remembering that you know picking people up afterwards is just as important as letting um, the organizations or the people fail in the first place. And America, actually, I should say, does that very well in many ways, like our bankruptcy system, our entrepreneurial system. In some other ways, as with our prison system, uh, we, we definitely have a needs improvement. How much of this is wrapped up in the whole idea of reinvention and even redemption if you get deeper into to the kind of American culture? Hugely. I mean, if you think about what we are as a country, right, we are the country that is founded by people who weren't doing well wherever they are. You know, lords and <laughs> aristocrats and successful merchants did not, by and large, decide to move over to America. The people who came here were the people whose farms weren't doing well. They were the second sons of rich men who didn't have much of a future. And so they picked up and came over here and started over. And that really inflected how we handled everything from people who have too much debt to how we handle business failures is um, that we look at people who failed much more kindly often than people in Europe did uh, because that's who we are as a nation. And we were for a long time very, very good at giving people those second and third chances to get it right that are so key, first of all, to making everyone better off, making people as individuals better off, but second of all, having a dynamic economy that does that creative destruction and does it well. 
Where does the role of having various kinds of social safety nets fit into that equation? A social safety net can be very important because it's it's how we encourage people to take some risks, right? Unemployment insurance makes it a lot easier to work for a startup that might not be around in a year. But it really matters, again, to go back to, it matters how we let things fail. And doing those social safety nets right is really important. And so unemployment benefits, something that's on a lot of people's minds right now, are a very good example of this. What Europe did was they said, look, if you lose your job, that's a terrible thing that's happened to you. We're going to step in and take care of you. So unemployment benefits are lengthy. They have very high replacement rates of your previous salary. Um, and what you saw, though, was that a lot of people, say steel workers, you know, steel foundries shut down. Frequently you would see people staying on unemployment benefits, waiting for another job as a steel worker, even if that industry had moved to Eastern Europe. Uh, what America has has been very good at is saying, okay, we're going to have unemployment insurance, but it's a short-term thing. You know, you'll you'll get some, some money to tide you over while you find a new job, but you need to be on top of finding a new job very quickly. Um, and what we did see when uh, North Carolina finally ended its extended unemployment benefits program was that contrary to what a lot of people had expected, the unemployment rate went down and labor more, uh, force participation went up because people did get more active about looking for jobs they did get back into the labor force. The downside of that, though, especially in the recent recession, is that a lot of people are ending up in Social Security disability, which is much more like a traditional European unemployment program. And what you see in states that, in countries that have that, un, that kind of unemployment structure is that there's a lot of pressure to prevent companies from firing in the first place because, of course, it's expensive for the person, it's terrible for them, and it's expensive for the government. And so they make laws saying making it very, very difficult to, to get rid of anyone. In Italy, a judge can just step in and reverse your decision and just say you shouldn't have fired this person even if your company is losing money or they're not good at their job. Um, the problem with that is that then people don't want to hire in the first place. And so what you see is that young people in Europe, old people have these very secure jobs that they can't lose. Young people in Europe tend to be stuck in short-term contract employment where the, the employer isn't investing in them as a worker isn't investing in helping them learn and get better because it's such a short-term thing. They're too afraid to take on permanent workers who will then become someone that they can't get rid of for the next 40 years. What do we learn from the other side of the equation? As you reported on this book, as we look at the people for whom everything comes too easily, whether it's their, their life situation as children, the place that they're born, their, their careers, their education, etc., what do we learn from looking at those that, that haven't really experienced any kind of significant failure but have had success nonetheless? Well, they end up being very fragile. And there's two problems with having all of that early success and none of the experience of adversity and overcoming it. And the first is that um, the psychologist named Carol Dweck at Stanford did some research where she put people through a series of tests to see how they would react two difficulties in overcoming them. And what she's found was that there were two groups of people. One group of people didn't want to take big challenges, and so they didn't tend to improve. The second group of people would take on things that they weren't very good at. Often they wouldn't do very well, but they would get better over time. And she's trying to figure out what is the difference between these people and finally looking at her data. She has this eureka moment where she says, the people who are doing well are the people who think of failure and challenges as an opportunity to learn, the way to deepen your talent pool. People who aren't doing well are the people who think of talent as a fixed quantity that you're born with. You're born smart, you're born, et cetera. Um, 
And so when they hit that big challenge that they're afraid of, they frequently avoid it. I mean, it can go to really quite extreme lengths. In some studies, of, uh, there's a phenomenon that psychologists call self-handicapping, where people will deliberately take do things that make them less likely to succeed because then they can blame that thing. And so they did one study where people had taken a test. They didn't, it was, it was kind of randomly constructed so that you couldn't really know. There was no right answer. And so they then just randomly told people uh, that they'd done well or not. And people who'd done well, a lot of them would, uh, they were given the choice between a performance enhancing drug and a a, uh, performance inhibiting drug, something that would actually make you perform worse. And a lot of them chose the performance-inhibiting drug because then when they failed the next time, because remember, they didn't know how they'd pass the first time because there was no way to actually pass. The questions didn't quite make sense. Um, they, uh, that way, they, it wouldn't be that they would find out that they weren't talented enough. It would be, oh, well, I, I took this drug. And, you know, a lot of us, I'm sure, I certainly did see this in high school with a kid who just doesn't do any studying because that way, if they flunk the exam, it's because they just didn't do any work or they get drunk the night before the SAT. You see people do this in their whole life to protect themselves. They give themselves an excuse for not succeeding, which is, oh, I didn't really try because as long as I tried, didn't try, then I could still be, you know, I could still have the potential for great success. It just didn't happen because I didn't bother. Um, and so you can actually, the, the interesting thing is, because I, for one, am very much of a fixed person. I have, I have, I grew up, I was always good at English class. I ended up as a writer. But then you get to the, the, the big leagues, and everyone was the best kid in their English class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really struggled with this as a writer, and what you see with writers, they tend to procrastinate. <laughs> and a lot of them will almost destroy their careers by just not turning stuff in. Um, the good news is I said this to Dweck, and she said, me too, you can change. And she said she knew she had changed when she, the first time she heard herself saying, wow, I suck at this. This is really fun. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people have asked me, is this a self-help book? For me, it really has been because I have changed. I've changed the way that I really think about taking on tasks where I haven't done it before. And I'm afraid because I might find out I'm not that good at it. And instead of thinking, oh, I'm going to find out that I never had what it takes, I think, well, yeah, of course I don't know how to do it, and therefore there's a good chance I won't do it well the first time. But when I do it, I will learn something valuable, and that will give me a better shot at, at doing it better the next time. In a cultural and a business environment that is more entrepreneurial, at least to the extent that people are not finding lifetime jobs, that everybody has to be their own proverbial brand, that it is more individually based, the skill sets for success are different than they might have been in 1950, let's say. Absolutely. You know, the skill set for getting ahead in 1950, it's being conformist, it's being risk-averse, it's being good with authority, it's staying, you know, coloring within the lines and getting a good job and then keeping that good job for the rest of your life. And it, it, it's a, a total sea change from that to where we are now, where no one is secure. The person who thinks they've got a guaranteed job is, is maybe in the most dangerous position at all. You know, I, I spent a, a week in bankruptcy court in Memphis, and one of the things they told me is they see a surprising number of doctors and lawyers and plumbers and high-earning professionals in bankruptcy court because these people think, wow, you know, I've got a job. It can't be outsourced. It's basically a guaranteed income for the rest of my life. And so they live right up to their incomes, and then they get sick or they have a divorce. And 
suddenly it turns out that their finances are really fragile. It's the people who are prepared for, you know what, I'm going to try to keep this job as long as I can, but I've always got to know, I've got to be learning and growing and making sure that I'm insured against change in the future. Those are the people who weather those storms the best. Which raises the question that within the context of this sea change, because failure is its own lesson, how can we teach people about these aspects of failure that you write about without them having failed? Well, I mean, you can't. <laughs> you do <laughs> learn it in failure. What you can do is preparing people, prepare people for failure by making sure that they're failing in the right way. And the first thing is, you know, I, I talked to one uh, CEO of, of a company, Jeff Steibel, who actually has failure in his performance reports. And if people don't have enough failures in the performance review, he says, you're not taking enough risks. You're not learning enough. Next year, I want to see more failures in this spot. But it's not, I lost the company four of its major customers. You want to take calculated risks. You're trying to, to fail in a way where, first of all, it's not going to be catastrophic if you do fail. And so one of the things is, Right now, we're hovering over kids, and we're making it harder and harder for them to fail in school because we're so afraid that they'll get knocked off that college track. Well, where is a better time to fail than when you are 14 years old and you're still living at home and you don't have any bills? We're doing exactly the opposite of what we should, which is that we're shielding kids, micromanaging their lives so much that they don't have that experience of struggling and overcoming it. When they're young, instead they get thrust out into the real world at the age of 25, out of what had been a very structured environment where it's, you know, as long as you do the work and show up, you know what you need to do in order to hit that next, jump through that next hoop. And suddenly they feel very lost and a little bit betrayed because the world isn't like what they were prepared for. So we should be encouraging kids um, and, you know, after they get out, Reframing failure not as something that's the worst thing that can happen and you must avoid it at all costs, but instead failure is part of how we grow and how we discover new things that we didn't even know existed. Um, but we do that in a smart way by being prepared, by making it low cost, and by recognizing when it's happened and moving on as quickly as possible once we have failed. From a business perspective, what is the impact that you're seeing of this overcoddling of kids, particularly overcoddling of smart kids, the impact that it's having on our entrepreneurial culture today? Well, you know, we still have young entrepreneurs, but uh, entrepreneurs will tell you that it's, it's a real challenge with millennials because they've come out of this really structured environment. And it's not, I don't want this to sound like, oh, the kids these days, they're not as great <laughs> as we are. You know, they're harder working than my generation. And they, they, they're more eager to please and they come out and um, it's not that they aren't hardworking. It's not that they're lazy and thoughtless and so forth. What it is, is that they haven't had that experience of striking out on their own and having a few disasters happen and then recovering and moving on because adults have been shielding them from that. And so what they have learned to do is work very hard. What they haven't learned to do is cope in an environment that's really unstructured. And so, you know, you see this, it's not just from elite schools, although that's definitely somewhere where it's reported. You know, I, I talked to a, a car rental manager in the Midwest who said he says the same things among the kids who are coming in to his store as, you know, first front desk people and then moving up, is that somewhere in, in that, like, between the age of 22 and, and 28, the 28-year-olds are fine and the 22-year-olds, it's like, he said someone flipped a switch, that the 22-year-olds 
just don't know how to cope when stuff happens that that they weren't told was going to happen. Talk about the issue of blame versus personal responsibility, a larger issue in the culture, but one that's very much a part of how people deal with failure. Absolutely. I mean, what's the first thing that happens when something goes wrong is we look for who did something wrong. And it's not just who made a mistake and that's too bad, but who did something kind of morally wrong that they really should have known better. Um, and let's, let's all get in and, and beat them up for having been stupid. And, you know, when we, when we started out, for most of our history, human beings have left, lived in small groups where everyone was pretty much doing the same thing. And it's easy to tell if someone didn't show up for the hunt or didn't show up to herd their goats or so forth. Um, but we're in a modern, complex society where cause and effect is just not that tightly linked anymore. You know, a lot of people in Germany lost their jobs because homebuyers in America had taken on more housing debt than they could. In that environment, you have to recognize that failure is often something that's merely the price of having a big, modern, complex society, and people in that society who are taking risks. It's not that they did something bad. Often it's that they did something good. Um, or that they simply made a mistake, and I think that's a lot of the story of the financial crisis on all sides. Regulators thought that they were brilliant because housing defaults were going down, credit was booming, the economy didn't seem to be having any recessions. Bankers thought that they were brilliant for the same reason, and homebuyers thought that they were brilliant, right? Everyone was making a ton of money for 30 years buying homes and then watching them appreciate. And they didn't understand the co- more large, complex, hard-to-see factors that we're making that an anomaly rather than the new normal. Um, so we tend to look around and, and, you know, I call it uh, in the book, blamestorming. Instead of brainstorming, it's when we all sit around and try to figure out who the villain in the piece is. And it's not very productive. Right? What, what happens when you've identified the villain? Well, nothing. It doesn't really help you move on. It just makes you feel better. Um, and we do it to ourselves is the worst part. You know, how many people when they're unemployed when they've had a relationship end, when, and, and so forth. The amount of self-recrimination, people often bury themselves in it and find it very hard to move on. And so and the thing, one of the most important concepts in the book is focus a lot less on the person and fault, not responsibility. Responsibility has to be a part of, of failing. That you know, It should be costly because otherwise we won't stop doing it. And we do want to stop failing. We want to find new things to fail at it at, at, at the minimum. Um, so it has to be costly. But that doesn't mean that we have to say, oh, this person is worthless, this company is worthless, and let's destroy them and, and push them out because they're bad and they failed. Um, and we certainly don't want to say that to them ourselves. What we want to say instead is, look, this is part of the price of, of being in a risky, knowledge-based economy. Okay, what's next? Failing is what happens when you're doing something you don't know how to do. You know, you think about when you learn to play tennis. You didn't develop an elaborate theory of tennis physics. Being a physicist does not help you play tennis or basketball any better than (laughs) than being an eight-year-old kid. What helps you is practicing and doing it wrong a bunch of times and then doing it right. And that's really a metaphor for the economy. So what's useful is saying, okay, well, we learned some stuff. We learned what doesn't work. You know, Thomas Edison learned 10,000 things that didn't make good light bulb filaments, and then he invented the light bulb. So how do we move on from that? Look at the process, not at the person. So think about what, is, what are the best steps for moving on, not uh, who is the bad person here and how can I punish them for having been bad. Another interesting place to look 
is in the entertainment arena and sports, sort of an extension of the same thing as far as entertainment is concerned, in that when you become a manager of a sports team or a coach of a sports team or the head of a studio, anything in those arenas, you know on the day that you're hired that you're going to get fired at some point. And and that's an interesting <laughs> part of this whole equation as well. Absolutely. I mean, you look at entertainment as a great example. You look at how many uh, how many movies. Titanic. Uh, I talk about this in the book. One of the biggest movie hits of all times. Until it had been in theaters for a while, basically everyone associated with the film was expecting it to be an enormous flop. The papers were merciless about this movie. It had gone hugely over budget. James Cameron. Uh, the stars were traumatized. Kate Winslet got pneumonia. And yet it was one of the biggest pictures of all time. Uh, it could easily have been Waterworld, which did pretty much exactly the same thing, but had the opposite result. You look at baseball, right? A great, a star guy in the Hall of Fame in baseball is a guy who fails seven out of ten times after he gets up to bat. Um, so it is this thing of how do you steal yourself to go through that? And part of it is the, the, the dream and the love of the, of the sport or the, the, the art. Um, but part of it is also that these are cultures that understand that, right? Baseball wouldn't be very effective if every time a pitcher uh, struck out, the manager went up and went and said, wow, you're really terrible, you're fired. Um, instead, they understand this is part of the game. This is part of the process. We're only going to hit so many times that we're going to take, take a lot of bets, and then the ones that win are going are to win big. And within that framework, temperament becomes as important as talent in many respects. Absolutely. You know, the people who succeed in sports, the people who succeed in, in as actors, the people who succeed in a lot of things, um, they're the people who pick themselves up after bad times because almost everyone gets to that point. It, you know, again, you may have been the, the biggest star in your college, but when you get to the major leagues, you're playing in a whole different ballgame, uh, literally. And so they're the people who understand that they're going to have setbacks and when they have setbacks, sure, maybe they beat themselves up. Maybe they, they have some bad moments because everyone does. It's not realistic to think that you're going to fail and just be like, oh, this is great. I failed. I'm unemployed. Um, it does feel bad. But after it feels bad, they pick themselves up and they go back out and they practice more and they learn more and they make themselves do the thing that they weren't that good at because they know that eventually that's how they are going to be good at it. It's interesting to look at the larger world in this framework, in this, as you say, modern knowledge-based economy, and try and ascertain success and failure of, of countries, even thinking in, in, in really broad swatches across the world, where success and failure will come, because these kind of aspects of temperament are so important to success in this kind of economy today. Yes, you want to build a culture that handles failure well. And one thing that Europe is really struggling with, and they're aware of this and they are working on it. I mean, the, the EU has initiatives based around this, is that um, they often have high rates of small business ownership. Um, and people do start small enterprises, but where they really struggle is in those entrepreneurial path-breaking firms that where people are going out trying something entirely new when there's just inherently a high, high pace of failure. I mean, Entrepreneurship is very much like baseball in that even in, even a firm that's well capitalized and has someone at the helm who has done this successfully before only has about a third of a chance, a, a one third chance of making it as a successful, you know, big firm. 
the rest end up going out of business or, or you know, getting their assets bought up, um, but they don't succeed. And so if you're an entrepreneur, you need to have, uh, if you want entrepreneurs, you need to have a high tolerance for that in your legal institutions and also in your culture. One of the most interesting things that I discovered as I was writing the book, um, you know, entrepreneurship is actually highly correlated um, in the United States with how generous bankruptcy is. The United States is an interesting little case because we have a federal bankruptcy code, uh, but the exemptions of how much you can shield from your creditors, like your house and your car and so forth, that's determined at the state level. Well, states that have more generous exemptions have more entrepreneurship. And we are actually, in the world, the United States has the most generous bankruptcy code in the world, which a lot of people don't know. I mean, you would think that Europe is generous to debtors, uh, America is easy, but it's actually the opposite. I was doing an interview for this book on a completely different topic, and uh, a Russia expert just in the middle of the interview started making fun of American bankruptcy because um, he thought it was ridiculous. He said, you know, you can just go in and say to a judge, I don't have any money, cancel my debts, and he does it. Um, but that actually really is part of the engine of American growth, which is when some, it, and it's good in two ways. The first is that before you fail, it's a lot easier to take that risk of being an entrepreneur, starting something new, if you know you're not going to lose your house at the end of it. But on the other side, you know, people who have failed, they, they have a lot of great information about what doesn't work in a company and some things that did, but maybe not quite enough to, to make that venture successful. Well, if that person is chained to their debt for the next 10, 20 years, still trying to struggle out of that financial hole, they're not going out and creating new value either for a new company that they start or for someone else's company. And one of the people that I talked to in the book, the Danish entrepreneur, has exactly that problem. He started a business, it was doing well, and then 2001 hit, he had a big setback, and 10 years later, he's still struggling with the debt that he took on um, because his business contracted. And you know he cannot shed it in bankruptcy because of the way that, that Danish bankruptcy law is structured. And so he was looking at losing his house when I talked to him. And that's exactly what you want to avoid and what America actually has been very good at avoiding. We're not great on all things about failure. Our prison system isn't very good. Europe probably does that better. Um, but on, on entrepreneurial things, on financial things, we are, we are the best in the world. And, of course, finally, the penultimate example might be Dave Ramsey, who you write about, who took his own personal bankruptcy experience and turned it into a business. It's such a fantastic story. He was a real estate investor in the 80s. He was 26 years old, and he had millions in real estate. And uh, suddenly, uh, banks started getting nervous. It was in the middle of the SNL crisis, and one of them called his loans, and that just toppled the whole because he had built it up on leverage. Well, he really... At one point, the, the sheriffs are coming to his house to, to take his stuff, and he finally has to declare bankruptcy. He fought not to do it. He finally had to go in and shed his debts. And he had this moment where he said, you know what? I'm never going to be in that position again. That is never going to happen. And so he decides he's never going to go into debt. And then he starts talking to other people about this, about this message of don't take on debt, you know, do it in cash, budget, prepare yourself for the future. And over the years writes a book, he's selling it out of his trunk, <laughs> you know, he's self-published. Um, but over the years, he builds himself up. Uh, one of the most successful radio en empires in the country, uh, he's got his own business, family foundation, huge, crazy house in Texas mm -hmm. next to Leanne and, and Tennessee, rather, next to Leanne Rimes. Um, but that all came because, uh, you know, he was able to get rid of those debts. If he had been like that Danish on entrepreneur, he a eventually actually did end up paying off his 
his debts, all of them. He went back and paid back the money. However, bankruptcy gave him that breathing space to get back on his feet, give his wife and children somewhere to live, and and to go and to move forward. And so, you know, it, it's great that he used bankruptcy. He spends his life telling people how to stay out of bankruptcy, and that's the great balance America has has struck, which is our bankruptcy is really easy and most people don't use it. And he's got exactly the right message, which is do your best to prepare yourself to not make yourself vulnerable to bankruptcy. But then if it happens, it, it can give you that breathing space that you need in order to recover, get back on your feet and move forward. Megan McArdle, the book is The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success, just out from Viking. Megan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.